Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I am so pleased to be joined by Amy Murray. And this has been a long time in the making, Amy, and we've tried several times to schedule this, and it hasn't worked out for one reason or another. I know we're we're busy people, uh, but I appreciate you carving out some time today to finally make this work. So thank you so much for joining us. Amy, how are you? I'm so good. And I'm so thankful that we had the flexibility. I really appreciate that. And I look forward to this conversation. It was so much fun planning for it. Wow. Well, you've done some planning. I will honor your planning <laughs> effort and make sure that we capture everything that you've planned on uh, talking about today. But before we get back to the Salt Lake 2002 stuff, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing these days. So uh, what is it that you're up to? I mean, it actually looks like you're in a conference room or something. I am. I'm actually, um, the last few days I've been recording for a global meeting, but pre the great global pause, which is how I refer, refer to COVID, I was living in Dubai. And I think you talked to Derek Salisbury about this before. We were both working on the World Expo 2020. And I was the senior producer of Ceremonies with Five Currents, Scott Gibbons' company. And many listeners know that Scott was part of the senior staff on the committee as the managing director of creative and ceremonies. This is the point where it's the loud screeching breaks because obviously we had to pivot and pivot so hard that we were probably just on two wheels of the car. And um, now, like many listeners of the podcast, until the curtain rises again on sports and entertainment, I have sidestepped from arenas and ballrooms and fields of play to Zoom. And I'm literally Zooming all day, every day. Um, when I say that, I mean, it's truly my job. I'm spending a good portion of my day producing global events virtually, leveraging the Zoom platform. So much so that I, I think I should officially be on the Zoom payroll, maybe even get some benefits. <laughs> Boy, no doubt. Well, okay, hold on just a second. So you're in Dubai, you're working on stuff there. You're working for Five Currents with Scott Givens. Were you working as a contractor with Scott or were you employed by Five Currents and are you still with Five Currents? So I was employed by Five Currents, but the model there is Scott and a few principals inside Five Currents and then you scale up for events and scale back down. So throughout the years, I've kind of gone back and forth with Five Currents on a few of their projects. So technically I was with Five Currents. Currently, most of the events are on pause. So until the curtain rises again. Well, I want to talk about this pause in just a moment, but before we do, yeah, I'd love to have Scott on. Uh, I've done work with Scott since 2002, mostly on bid-related work, uh, Olympic bids, so the Rio bid, um, the Istanbul 2020 bid, the Beijing 2022 bid um, was probably the last one. So it's been a little while, and hopefully one day we'll get Scott on as well. But uh, you've mentioned this word pause. Mm. Tell me about this word pause. What does this mean? Sure. I I think for those of us that are in the event world, we're sort of a 24-7, 365 group. We don't really know schedules as far as stopping, personally stopping. I think we're just always going. 
COVID has provided this opportunity to pause, not stop, but pause, take inventory of our lives, what we're up to, and maybe transform them. And by that, I mean, in the event world, we're so used to it being a certain way, looking a certain way, and we just can't do that right now. So this is an absolute creative renaissance. We have the opportunity to just turn everything on its side and look at it differently, differently than we've ever looked at it before. And obviously that's really hard to do, but if we just stop and take advantage of that time, we might create the most beautiful things we've ever had the opportunity to create. We just have to believe that we can. That's really, really interesting way to to approach it. Um, I would call it making lemonades out of lemons. And 2020 has has had no shortage of uh, lemons, you know, (laughs) between pandemics and fires and floods and locusts. And (laughs) even in in Salt Lake, we had an earthquake and then we had uh, hurricane force winds the other day, which knocked down a lot of trees. Um, You know, it's 2020. I'm very happy for it to leave. But but I think your point is well taken, which is uh, we've now been given an opportunity as morbid as it may seem to say uh, we've now been given an opportunity to kind of try and reinvent ourselves. Absolutely. And I like to, when I think about what I do professionally, I like to think of myself as an idea generator and a joy curator. And that equals an experience producer. And like you're saying, we have the opportunity to just define it. Maybe focus in on it in a way that we never have before. I'm curious, what are some of the innovations? I don't know if you wanted to go down this track or not, but you know, what are some of the innovations that you're looking at? I mean, most of my work that I do is with the International Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, they're in a difficult spot with Tokyo 2020 being postponed to 2021. And they're still trying to figure out what that looks like. They're still what analyzing, I guess, is the word, various scenarios. And so, you know, nothing really is set in stone yet for 2021. But, you know, what are some of those creative, innovative things that you are working on uh, with current prospective clients? That's really interesting. Um, At the moment, everybody is running to catch up. So there's sort of this lag in time. Everybody now has moved virtual. So they're trying to get ahead of virtual. I think one of the mistakes we're possibly making is that we're trying to predict what it's going to be. And I think one option would be stop trying to predict it, make a decision, commit to it, and just live into that decision because there's no right or wrong. It's just a choice at this point. So, creatively, when it comes to the games or any event right now, right? Uh, football was on last night or NBA in the bubble right now. There's no, there's no correct way. There's just going through it. So for us, when I look at potential clients or clients that I have, where we're starting is before you used to start at the headline the day after an event. Now we're sort of starting in the, how do we want people to feel? It's not about avids. It's not about getting them to come in and stay longer. It's about right now, how do they feel and how can we respond to them in the moment?
Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. Talking about, okay, it's really about people's emotions and their feelings and how much that uh, impacts the experience. And uh, everybody's experiencing a range of emotions, I guess, at the moment. Uh, you, you mentioned that you were a joy curator. I, I, I love this term, uh, joy curator. And, and so that kind of brings me to my little podcast here, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, trying to find little rays of sunshine in, mm-hmm. uh, in amongst the, the clouds of uncertainty that we're all under uh, mm-hmm. during this year um, by looking back at those uh, sunnier days and so we're going to spend a little time now going over the Salt Lake 2002 games with you, Amy, and I really appreciate you coming on and doing that. And uh, to start us off, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, what what you do, what you were doing uh, back in the 1990s, <laughs> and uh, how you just found your way to the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Well, I wasn't too successful at becoming a background singer, which is what I really would have liked to have done. So instead of that, I worked in what would now be known as an experiential agency or marketing agency. And like any one of those kind of groups, it was long hours, crazy opportunities to learn, do things that had never been done before and experience it with really smart, creative people. Um, Some of the things that we worked on back then were the Avon three-day walk for breast cancer, big ride across America, Alaska age ride. Again, these were things that had never been done. So that's sort of part of my framework. I like to be challenged with, I've never done this before, but, and one of the people that worked at this company was Tosh. He was working in the same company and he was leaving to go to Sydney. So that was great. He went to Sydney to do the torch relay. And a good friend of mine, Amy Hyatt said, I really want to work in Australia on the torch relay. So there was that natural connection. She did. She got a job over there. And at the end of that experience for her, she flew back, stopped in Los Angeles. Um, She had a layover, stayed at my house. And I think it was maybe three or four days later when she woke up (laughs) from her travels and the jet lag that is known as the Olympics. We started talking about and planning out going to Salt Lake City and getting jobs in Salt Lake City. And it worked out so well for us that our desks were actually back to back. So you come to Salt Lake City after the Sydney Games conclude. What do you do? What or what is your role there in the organizing committee? I... This is not also not new for me. My title is one of those titles that when you hear it, people kind of cock their head to the side and say, what? So my title was Olympic Experience Producer. Again, back at that time, we didn't really talk about experiential marketing or user experience. Those are kind of new terms, but that's what we were doing. And um, I remember very distinctly meeting B.G. Morris and saying what I did. He looked at me, he was like, what is that job? That's ridiculous. But um, it, it truly was, and I, I, I hate to sort of say it, but it's true. It was the best job of any job that you could have had at the Olympics. Everybody else claims that they're sticking their flag in the ground saying they had the best job, but I really did because I got to touch every venue. I got to work with all the different teams. And my job really was to focus on 
The founder of the Olympics said the most important thing in the Olympic Games is to not win, but to take part. And I was really challenged with making sure that I was creating experiences that were accessible to everyone. Even if you didn't have a ticket, you still could have an Olympic moment, an Olympic experience. All right. Well, tell me about some of those experiences that uh, you and your colleagues there at SLOT created. I mean, this sounds very, very interesting. You're right. Today in the IOC, for example, you know, there's a functional area called spectator experience that didn't used to exist when we were around in Salt Lake 2002. Um, So, you know, customer experience is now really at the fore, but it wasn't necessarily so back then. So why don't you tell us about some of those really interesting things that you guys took on and delivered for Salt Lake? Sure. So again, people know about the venues, the Ice Palace with Beth White, the E Center, the Delta Center. What we had was Salt Lake Olympic Square, Olympic Medals Plaza, Park City Main Street, and even the Athlete Village. We did entertainment in the Athlete Village. Also adjacent to that was what I call atmosphere talent. So atmosphere talent roamed everywhere, went from venue to venue. So those were the things that kind of fell under my umbrella. How did you come up with these ideas? You know, I'm not a creative person. I'm an accountant by uh, education and in my early professional career. So I'm about the furthest uh, thing you could find from a creative person. So how do creative people come up with these things? Because they sound amazing. And when you see them, you get so you soak in the experience. It's a lot of fun. But I guess, you know, we kind of take it for granted that they just happen. Um, But people have to actually come up with a vision for these things. Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. And again, back to I had the best job. I was um, tasked with brainstorming atmosphere talent and the way that I approach. And and I just, again, have to nod, give a nod to Scott Gibbons. Scott would sort of make these statements and then he would turn around and walk away. And I, I oftentimes just stood there with a blank face. Like I've got 52 million questions to ask, but I got to get to work and then come back to Scott with a report, you know? So one of them was creating this atmosphere talent. And I took a different spin, which was instead of pulling together in a room, people who were known for their creativeness and that that's what they did all day, every day. I decided to pull in people that were working in the venues who could be creative with me but also understood the framework and the obstacles that might be in our way. So we pulled everybody into a room and I have to thank Sherry Paycheck. She was kind of my partner in crime. So we curated this group and there were people like Andy Williams, Brad Eggert, Jessica Judge, Derek Salisbury, Trisha Fenton, I think was in that room. Just trying to remember every great face that was in there. And we just started to brainstorm around when you're at an event, What kind of entertainment would you like to see? Equally, we were talking about if I were to bring in a giant Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, that would be a problem logistically. So we kind of walked through, here's what would work. Here's what would be really difficult. We made this list on the blackboard. I'm truly sad I, I don't still have that list. But we came up with ideas that grew up. 
and under the creative direction of one of my favorite people from the games, the great late Diane Doyle, she took these ideas and created things like the hot chocolate ladies who literally were four ladies who sang and handed out hot chocolate as you waited in line or um, the six man bobsled team who sang and one of the songs they sang was Wipeout. And when they got to a certain point in the song, they're, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to add, they walked around in a six-man bobsled, sang this song, and then it broke apart. Like, oh, Wipeout. Or there was um, a, a dance troupe that were dressed in painted leotards and tights, and it was a landscape and they carried seagulls with them and they danced through the crowds. So if you were looking up, you saw this flock of seagulls moving through the crowd. And if you were looking on the ground at them, you saw these dancers. It was beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. But those ideas came from people who were accountants or ran security or worked in accreditation because those were the people we were trying to entertain. All right. So that takes me to, I got a couple of questions for you on these things because they sound fascinating. Number one is you've got to find some budget to do this kind of stuff. And yeah. in some organizations, they might look at these kinds of things and say, well, this is not mission critical, right? Uh, we have to deliver the games. And so if you want to do these creative things, then you're going to have to find creative solutions to fund those things because we don't have the budget. So did you face any budget constraints or were you able to basically just do whatever you wanted? As much as I mean, I was young, right? So I thought I had a huge budget. I thought I had all the money in the world. And looking back, I know that I didn't have all the money in the world. We were very fastidious about where the money was spent and how far how far things had to go. You know, it wasn't just the 17 days of the games. It also reached into Paralympics. So when we created, we created long-term so everything we built had to be, had to last. And it, and just because we were building things to last didn't mean it was more expensive. Okay. Second part of my question for you here, Amy, where do you find the talent? You know, you come up with this idea. Okay. We want to have hot chocolate ladies. Well, you got to go find some hot chocolate ladies, or we want to have the six man bobsled. Well, you got to find six guys to be able to sing wipe out in this six man bobsled thing. So where do you find these people? Well, I could say we found them at happy hour down at the trolley, but that's not <laughs> that's not where we found them. So around this same time, there were the auditions for opening and closing ceremony mass cast. And I was allowed to sit in there with my boss, Bill Cavanaugh, absolutely to this day, some of my favorite days in my life because we just laughed and enjoyed all of the talent that came to audition for Kenny Ortega, who was the choreographer. So we sort of sat in back and watched and, and we, we had a call, a call for talent. And we saw everything Christian. We saw little kids dancing. We saw um, grannies dancing, which I will hopefully talk about in a minute. And we saw a, a gentleman who I, I'm not joking. He played a, a saw like the kind that you use to saw a huge log in half. He played it with a bow and it was, he was the phantom and, and the saw played the part of Christine from Phantom of the Opera. Can't make that up. And I, I like to call this the original America's got talent. 
because that's exactly what it was. So we saw all of these people, whether it was a marching band from a high school or a dance troupe or the clogging grannies who were scheduled every day at noon to perform on our snowflake stage. I'm not sure everybody was happy about that because there was an office right next to it. But, you know, noon, time to go to lunch. Ladies are telling you to go. It was it was a really fun, amazing experience because Utah has a lot of talent and a lot of diversity. And I go back to the clogging grannies. When you have a woman in her 90s who is literally performing every day for the guests that are coming to the Olympics, that says something. And and they were good. So it's I'm not I, I'm not saying it with any bit of um, humor. I'm saying I very proudly put them on the stage because they were great. Well, it's interesting you say Utah does have a lot of talent. Uh, it's true. We had uh, Ray Grant on a few weeks ago. And he was talking about just how many pianos were sold here locally. It's you know basically more pianos sold here than anywhere outside of New York City. Lots of kids grow up playing musical instruments. They grow up in dance classes. My daughter, I can say, I've spent a lot of money on uh, dance classes for her. It's just a thing. It's part of the culture here. And so you're right. There are a lot of talented individuals here. Well, one of the things that we did and this was not my responsibility but it became part of the art curriculum that went throughout the games was um, we had an olympic band so there was auditions statewide auditions and we picked the very best of the best provided them with the music they rehearsed on their own and then they would come together a few days a month to rehearse and prepare. And they were not just a band, they, they marched. So they opened the square, they performed in different places. They were very, very good. What about the weather? Because <laughs> this is going on in the winter yeah. and you have these acts that may be performing in adverse conditions, any weather impacts? Well, interesting enough that the weather for us prior to the games we were a little concerned about, I don't know if you remember, but a few days before the games, it was extremely cold and we didn't have a lot of snow and then it started to snow. So we were building the Olympic square and we had these large ice sculptures. Like we, it was part of the installation that we had someone actually, you know, with the chainsaw making them and putting them on pedestals. So I was thinking, this is great. Winter ice. Well, what happened a few days in was it got very warm and Utah is sunny and our ice sculpture started to melt. <laughs> so in that moment, we were, we had to come up with a plan because they were supposed to last all 17 days. So overnight we built umbrellas basically for each one of these sculptures that went up pretty quickly, provided shade for them, and therefore didn't melt before the end of day 17. <laughs> You've got to tip your hat to the logistics people and the overlay people and stuff who can come up with these solutions at the very last minute and help you out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which sort of lends its way to a segue. In December, Scott Givens, I know he keeps coming a lot up a lot here. Um, two things happened. First, um, 
Scott said kind of in passing in Scott Gibbons fashion, Hey, Amy, I have this idea. I think we should do a parade. Great, Scott. I love that idea. Do we have money for it? Back to your budget question. I was like, Hey, I'd love to do that. He said, well, we have all these amazing Michael Curry puppets from the opening ceremony and they're gigantic. So if I give you a list of those, can you create a parade? Can you choreograph it, get the music, cast it? Absolutely, Scott. Like, you don't say no to that. You're like, yeah, of course I can. Now, I'm just going to break this down. We didn't have a cast. It's December, which means by the time we do have a cast, we're going to have about six weeks to rehearse. We don't have a rehearsal space. And we're already tapped out because almost every space is accounted for. We don't have a space to hold the puppets, hold the costumes. Oh yeah, we don't have costumes either for the cast we don't have. (laughs) We don't have space for their personal belongings. I haven't accounted for their food, any of that. We also don't get access to those gigantic props until after opening ceremonies. And we launch on day two at 4 p.m. So that's one of those interesting riddles and mysteries, and I love a good mystery, where it's like, okay, here's your opportunity. You asked for this. Now go make it happen. So, you know, immediately I, hey, Jerry Anderson, how you doing? He's like, hey, Amy. And he knew me. You know, he saw me coming. He's like, "What, what does she want? And I said, hey, Jerry, do we have space? I'm pretty sure he laughed at me. I'm pretty sure he said, get out of my office. No, he didn't say that. But he did say, I don't have the capacity to get something permitted, get you a tent. I don't mean to say you're on your own, but you're on your own, kid. He gave me that big Jerry smile. I was like, I've just been challenged by Jerry Anderson. And boy, I'm going to meet that challenge. So Dave Gustafson was the GM, general manager of Salt Lake Olympic Square. So we sat down as a Dave, what am I going to do? And in absolute Dave fashion, he's like, yeah, no problem. We got this. So we identified a space. I went and got it permitted. We got a tent. We, you know, built it out. And I was able to hire really good friends of mine. Robin and Sean Trowbridge, Trowbridge, and they are choreographers and performers from Disneyland. And they um, mapped this out. They, they never got to see the cast because I said to them, I've already seen them. Here's your cast. So God bless them for trusting me. And they were given the music. They, they figured it all out, came into town, rehearsed this cast with no, no real props. We had, you know, not fake props, but we had stand-in props. And they, they knew that on day two, when we did our first step, when we launched that parade, it, it had to be perfect. So Dave Gustafson said, I will give you time early in the morning if you can get them to come in. So this cast, and it was 178 people. So 178 people came in, and these are high school kids probably around four in the morning and they started rehearsing because prior to that they had been rehearsing in a parking lot that had been taped out. They rehearsed as long as they could had to open up the square. And I don't know if you remember, but Salt Lake Olympic square was actually a 24 hour 
venue. It was open 24 hours a day. So they walked away, hopefully took some naps and came back on day two. Oh, I forgot to mention the very talented Michael Curry, who made those props, spent some time with them as well, teaching them how to move the props and be, be the fish or be the big bear. If, if you remember the big bear from opening ceremony, like that is not easy to operate. That takes a lot of coordination. They made it happen. And it was impressive. Four o'clock music starts. They step off and they were led by the Olympic band. They went first and the parade was a humongous hit. People met and, and sat and waited for that parade, the four o'clock and the seven o'clock parade that happened. It, I was, it was such a privilege to see that come to life, literally come to life from paper to present. That's a really, really great story. It's so cool. I confess I did not see the parade, but what that story illustrates, among many things, is that you need willing partners to pull off these things. I always consider these games, uh, whether they're Olympic Games or other major events, you know, it's just overcoming one impossible obstacle after another. (laughs) And then and then you and then it happens. Yeah. So I think that's an important lesson. Uh, for people that you can make really, really great things happen if you can find willing partners. 100%. And and my role, again, my role was a little bit fluid in that I, my venue was Salt Lake Olympic Square and Park City Main Street, but I touched other venues as well because the atmosphere talent would go there. And we had someone whose job it was to focus on the atmosphere talent, but he started a little bit later. So I had done a lot of the legwork. So I, I, again, going back to who had the best job, I I really do think I'm at the top of the leaderboard. Well, you, you definitely are putting yourself up there for very serious consideration. (laughs) I would happily concede my position uh, to you. I mean, Keeping the workforce management systems up and running pales in comparison, I think, from a fun factor perspective to the, what did you call it? Something experience, like the customer experience, something experience, Maybe the games experience. Olympic experience. Yeah, Olympic experience. Uh, so I, I will I will happily concede my position to you. That's fair. I have a really fun story. And it's one of those things that I am so sad that I didn't figure out how to record this voicemail. It wasn't a voicemail that came to me immediately. I think it went to Angie Abaticola first. So a gentleman called, I think he was maybe from Maine and he left a voicemail for the Olympic committee. Basically it was a, to whom it may concern or Hey friends that are organizing this. I have something really important to share with you. And, you know, it was sort of a courtesy call, but, but also like his heart was so in it. And he goes on to say, I, I don't know the name of this song, but every time I hear it, I think of the Olympics. Like it's one of those, it just makes you feel victorious. It just makes you feel like something big is going to happen. And he, he says, 
we we really need this song to be played and you know tell NBC we've got to play it because it's perfect it's really dramatic and he goes on to actually talk about the thrill of victory the agony of defeat which is a nod to wide world of sports but you get it the emotion and he he starts to sing because he doesn't want to get this wrong he wants us to know and he said, the song sounds something like, I mean, I'm not a singer, but the song sounds something like, I mean, there's really dramatic drums and dum, dum, dum. And it goes like, and there's a big crash. And you can just imagine my pure joy listening to this voicemail on repeat about a thousand times. And you bet I called this man back and I said, Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention and reminding us how great this song is. We will absolutely consider this. And, you know, thank you. And of course, this song is John Williams, 1984 Olympic fanfare. I don't know if, I don't know if my uh, interpretation of the song was good enough for people to understand what that was, but it just kind of puts a pin in the Olympics aren't just us not just the, the athletes, this is for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It is for everyone. And, and it's been interesting. I was just having a conversation the other day. It was last week with Lou Loria uh, on the Paralympic games and how in the last couple of games editions, the Paralympic games have become extremely popular. You know, they, they, the, the events are very, very well attended. They're seen as a family affair. they, they're really enjoyed by by the local population, and I think you're right. It, the entire community uh, benefits uh, from staging these games, and so that's a wonderful, wonderful story. And I know you've got other stories that you want to share, so let's get to those stories. <laughs> let's get to those stories, Amy. So many pinch me moments, and I'm going to share this one. Um, Again, back in December, I think it was like December 14th, Sarah Wiseman said, hey, Amy, I know you used to plan events in Washington, D.C. Uh, what do you got going on this week? I'm like, Sarah, I'm going to fly home because it's Christmas time. Do you think you could just extend, you know, stay a little bit longer and come with us to Washington, D.C. because the torch is going to pass through the White House? Now, stop it right there, right? Like, did somebody just say I could go to the White House for the torch relay? It's one of those, mo I had so many moments, Christian, where I was like, do not show the expression on your face. Just be like, of course, but of course I will. I do that every day. So I, I did get to go to the White House. And this was a short few months after 9-11. And while we were there, it was very early in the morning, about probably 5.30 a.m. in the morning. And the Secret Service were pretty excited to have guests. And we it was cold. It was very cold. So a few of us were standing in a little tiny room trying to keep warm. And uh, the Secret Service said, would you be interested in a White House tour? Well, I don't know about you, but... Absolutely, yes. I would be interested in a White House tour by the Secret Service that was made just for us. So it was one of those walking through the halls, so quiet, so poignant, so it felt so historic. And it was just their voices guiding us through these halls, looking at these pictures of past presidents and 
our group landed in the East Ballroom, I think, the East Ballroom, if that's the right name. Sorry, Brian Mosteller, if I got it wrong. And we took a group photo. And I remember thinking as I stood near Senator Romney, I think he might be president one day. And I think this moment is so important. And it was on so many levels. Mitt, I still think he should be president. And sorry, I do. And after that, we went back out on the on the um, field where we were, the Rose Garden, where the torch was going to pass by. And, you know, we're event people. We're, we're not the guests. So I was standing in the back next to one of the Secret Service men. And he said, could I get you a seat? And I said, no, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not supposed to sit down. And he said, no, I think you can sit down. So he took a chair and he put it in the front row. And he sat me in the front row. And then he came up with two more seats and put them next to me. And I was like, oh, you know, I was thinking somebody from the team was going to sit down. But it was Condoleezza Rice. And I had a moment where my chest got a little tight and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to breathe. She was the president of Stanford, like this woman. And she said, oh, do you work for the Olympics? And I, I, I might have blacked out, Christian. I'm not 100% sure what I said. I do think it was intelligent. And I think what I said was correct because she asked me about the history of the torch. But it was one of those, again, pinch myself moments where I, I will never, ever forget it. Ever. That is so cool. Now, many people have talked about the torch. And the torch is very emotional and, and many people have shared some really impactful stories about the torch here on this podcast. That's certainly a unique one. It's hard to, to go over White House uh, <laughs> torch relay and sitting next to Condoleezza Rice. Um, that's, that's pretty darn impressive. Especially for, I mean, no one will know this except you and I were recording on September 11th. And for me, uh, when thinking about this day, I always think about the person that I worked with from the military bands. So one component of my job was scheduling all the military bands to play on all of the venues throughout the whole Olympics and Paralympics. So we had been working for months to get all, to figure out the schedule because it wasn't just one band. It was all sorts of bands which meant we were accrediting hundreds of people. And again, from all over the country. So he was my main contact and he had all the information and was working diligently to meet, I think it was like an October 10th deadline for accreditation. And 9-11 happens. And that morning, uh, we were actually in the office, Amy Hyatt and I were in the office that morning, sitting in a conference room, watching television. and. I emailed him just to make sure he was safe. And I, I didn't hear from him, obviously, for, for many days. I think it was maybe a week later. And he explained to me that he was safe. And, but um, his office was the first office that was not destroyed. It was intact. But he wasn't allowed to go back into the Pentagon. So he was concerned that he wasn't going to get the accreditation paperwork done in time. I 
this man had capacity to be concerned about that, which was emotionally overwhelming for me that he had that capacity. So I, I always think about him on this day and I'm always so filled with emotion when I, when I get a chance to see a military band, because it takes me right back to that moment, right back to the Olympics. Well, you, you did, uh, you did spill the beans there. We are recording this on, on nine 11, which is, which is interesting. You know, I almost forgot. And that's really terrible of me to say my wife and I went to the store this morning. I had an early call with the IOC. And then after that, we went to the store. I like to go in the mornings when it's not crowded. I'm a bit antisocial that way. I will admit I saw the flag at half staff. And I asked, I said, what's the flag I have staff for? And my wife just looked at me. She, it's 9-11. And then uh, all the memories started coming, you know, flooding back. Well, and what people can't see and you might see is I actually got goosebumps when you were telling me that story. And for me, um, that kind of leads to my goosebump moment, which I'm not a fan of heights. In fact, it's it's kind of a problem for me. It, it, it can limit me. But after 9-11, Larry Ganson, who's one of my favorite people, he was tasked, he and probably several other people were tasked with hanging that gigantic American flag from the top of the Wells Fargo building. So absolutely in line with every Olympic task, it took many hands to make this happen. And I didn't really have, honestly, and Larry will tell you this, Larry said, you have to do it. So I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. And it was very simple. We all got in line. We had maybe one, two, three grommets that we had to zip tie. But we're very conscious of the flag, making sure that we don't do anything that we shouldn't with it. And we're zip tying it. It's at the very top of the Wells Fargo building, which is very tall. It's windy. And I, I clearly, clearly remember the faces of everybody that was helping Larry's voice as we were trying to make sure that it was spaced correctly, that it was tight enough, that nothing was going to go wrong. And I, it, it is stamped in my mind watching and hearing the flag furl down the building. The, the games for me, that's the legacy. Those moments, those people, like people talk about writing an autobiography of their life. The games was a book in itself, like that whole experience, because it was so rich in moments, rich in people. Like you would never be hungry for soul food at that time in our life. And I think, I think people have said it on the podcast, but I'll reiterate, there's never been a job since that I have felt was so important and that I have felt was so, um, that people were so genuinely connected with the same mission, with the same belief. It's an experience like no other. Well, I will agree with that. It was a unique experience. 
And sometimes that's a bit hard to look at, to think, well, God, my best days were behind me, you know, (laughs) but actually the way I choose to look at it is this has given me actually so many years to savor those memories, you know, rather than have them at the end, I really get to marinate them, marinate in them and uh, really, really enjoy them. So what you've given me is just a beautiful memory gumbo, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, it's just been fantastic. And we've gone a little out of order because you just gave me a beautiful goosebump moment, which was, we, you know, we typically end with that, but, 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 uh, that's a, that's a fantastic, fantastic memory. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be up on top of that very tall Wells Fargo tower, unfurling that flag, the sound that it made as it was being unfurled. I mean, the way you described it was just fantastic. And I really appreciate that since we're going a little out of order, uh, which is totally fine by me. I like to, to change it up a little bit. And so I appreciate you doing that. Chart us, chart us out for the rest of the way. What do we, what do we want to talk about next here, Amy? Well, I think on our list was food and like some other people have said for, uh, for me, my special occasion place was probably going to breakfast at Ruth's, but where I went and I will admit probably more than I should have probably almost daily was the globe across the street and the little coffee shop there. And I'm not a coffee drinker, but again, you know, back to the people and the absolute heart and soul of the games, like that it just, you can't get better than the people that were around us. Maybe not even in our building, but the people that were at the coffee shops and the grocery stores and the restaurants, like we were surrounded by quality people left and right. Absolutely. And the Globe and Ruth's Diner, both great places. Ruth's still around. And uh, actually I'm looking to try to to uh, have a nice outdoor meal there in the next couple of weeks with some with a few former slot colleagues, so that would be nice. Um, what's that? Raspberry jam and biscuits. Oh yeah, biscuits. It's hard to beat that. Um, so we've got the map. We've got the map, and we'll put the. We've got pins already. I think both Ruth's and the Globe have been nominated. Globe's no longer there, of course, so we'll put it on the list. It's on the list, and Ruth's. Um, we'll make sure that um, you're added to, to it as a as a nominator of Ruth's. Uh, so we'll put that on the map. So let's go to music. You've talked a lot about music. You've talked about the military bands. You've talked about the singers and the bobsled and the hot chocolate singers and so on and so forth. So music has obviously played a very important role in the work that you did and the memories that you've shared. So why don't you give us your musical picks? Man. So again, given my role during the games, I am confident I could do a Spotify playlist just on my, on my own. And there were so many um, musical options here, whether it was um, for me, I worked with composers and worked on music for the parade, that kind of stuff, but I could lean pretty hard on any of the acts at Olympic medals Plaza Bare Naked Ladies, Foo Fighters, InSync. By the way, I got a call from the mock the night that InSync was playing that I had to go get a water bottle off the stage. I didn't even know the mock had my number. I got to be honest with you. I was like, well, how? I don't. I swear, I thought somebody was looking at me from above. And obviously, I could I could nominate um, the hero song of of your podcast, which is You Two's Walk On. But I kind of narrowed it down to two. The first one is. Uh, Say My Name by Destiny's Child. And I picked that because 
It is a very difficult karaoke song to sing. And you can ask Sherry Paycheck, Amy Hyatt, and Jessica Judge, and anyone that was there listening to us that night. I apologize. It was truly horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Hats off to Beyonce and Destiny's Child, because that's a hard song. But the second one, and this is what I'll nominate, and I, I made this choice very deliberately because we were recording on September 11th. So on September 11th, 2001, Ben Folds Five released an album. And there's a song on that album called The Luckiest. And this is a love song. And he says, where was I before the day I saw your lovely face? And how he was changed from that moment. And he just acknowledges that because of that moment, he is the luckiest person. For me, probably for everyone that listens to this podcast, Salt Lake, the city, Salt Lake, the landscape, Salt Lake, the people, Salt Lake, the relationships that we carry forward. Those are the verses of our Olympic song. And we are truly the luckiest. Amen to that. And uh, very, very worthy choices to put on our playlist. So I'm happy to throw Destiny's Child and uh, <laughs> Ben Fulpido on there. So thank you very much. Uh, that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, very poignant memories. Um, how do we wrap us up? Well, I think I think uh, one of the things you asked is you say chill, chill moment or favorite memory. But I think for me, I just want to acknowledge the legacy of the games, which was friendship and people. And I was so lucky to gain some strong and influential mentors. Scott Gibbons, who I, I mentioned earlier, I'm still so fortunate to work with him on global events. And he's been integral in my career path and providing me with tools to move forward in the creative entertainment world. But also, I, I really want to acknowledge someone that we've lost, and that is Mike Miladanos. Um, one of the jobs that I do is with uh, USA Gymnastics. And Mike, in Mike fashion, took me under his wing and coached me with respect to the sport. But bigger than that, he really coached me on life and living a great life. I've saved every email he sent to me. And I, I go back often just so that I can hear his voice in my head again. And finally, one of the greatest legacies for me is the family that was created, right? When I was in Salt Lake, I didn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have a family there at the time. So it was my colleagues and the people around me. And one of my very, very closest, dearest friends is Jessica Judge. And I'm the godmother to her son, Henry. And that's the greatest legacy of the games for me. You know what? I think most of us would say the same thing. It really is about the people. So I just talked about mentors and obviously the friendships that we made in Salt Lake have lasted for all of us and will last our entire lifetime. But there's a group of us that each year we try to get together this year. It might look a little different, but Alan Brooks, Andy Williams and his wife, Karen Wright Williams. Brad Eggert, his wife, John Peaster and his wife, and Colleen Mullen. We do a weekend, three days maybe, and we call it Hockey Palooza, where we try to pick some place around the States. And we go, and a few years ago, we actually went back to Salt Lake City and saw a few of our friends. But we'll sit around, catch up like we haven't missed a beat, play Phase 10, eat a lot of Oreos, and 
plan for our next time that we can get together. And because of COVID, we've been fortunate that every Friday night since March, we do a happy hour and see each other's faces and catch catch up and really just try to love hard on one another so that we we don't miss a beat, even if we miss this year's gathering. Okay. Phase 10, you got me right there. I'm a huge fan of phase 10. It's one of my favorite games. So I officially endorse Hockey Palooza. And I think that's an awesome memory. And I love the happy hour, the virtual happy hour uh, every Friday. Well, if somebody wants to join us for one of our happy hours, please reach out. I'll share the link with you and, and you can be our special guest that week. Excellent. Well, listeners, she's thrown down the gauntlet. So let's uh, let's join Amy for virtual happy hour. Here's something I forgot to tell you. My dog's middle name is Mitt. Your dog's middle name is Mitt? Yeah. Where you at, Milo? Come here, Milo. His name is Milo Mitt Murray. Well, I just have to give you points for your dog actually having a middle name. Having a full name for that, because a lot of dogs just have one name, right? Right. So your dog has three names. He does. That's pretty impressive. Come here. Come here, Milo. Amy, if people want to learn more about all of the innovative stuff you're doing in events, they want to join one of your Zoom meetings or or if they just want to catch up on Salt Lake 2002 memories, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? You What are your handles or or what's the best way to contact you? Sure. Uh, My email is amyjoemurray, A-M-Y-J-O-M-U-R-R-A-Y at Gmail. Same, I'm Amy J. Murray at, on Instagram, on Twitter. I have a website, but you can also just give me a call. 312-622-6556 is my phone number and I'd be happy to chat. All right. Fantastic, Amy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our little podcast here. We'll catch you again soon. Amy, thank you. You're welcome. Have a great day.